Good morning. Good morning. It is really good to see you all here this morning. I'm glad you've come out to worship with us. I want to welcome those at home who are watching from home. Um, we're happy to have you worshiping with us as well. You know, it's, it's just so reassuring sometimes to me personally, and I hope to you to realize that because of God's amazing grace, we don't have to spend eternity in a, in a hell. We don't have to worry about what's going on here on this earth. This is where we live, but this is not where we stay. And we have something so much greater ahead, all because of his amazing grace. Stand with me if you would this morning.
Well, good morning. It is great to be with you this morning. We're looking forward to what God has for us as we worship Him together, not just in song, not just in prayer, but in attentiveness to His Spirit and Him being here to share with us today and to have a word for us. That's part of our worship as well. So we look forward to participating with you in that. We do want to say it's good to see you here with us. It's good to see you at home if you're joining us there. And we also want to make you aware of one opportunity that we have coming up. Of course, the start of school for most of our kids has been pushed back into September. We didn't get to do vacation Bible school the way we had hoped to do this year, and we've talked about this idea of doing some backyard Bible clubs and really just kind of thinking about and planning on when could that get started, how would that get started, what would that look like. And I want to throw something out there. I know many of you all have been doing your part social distancing, but I know some of us um, have been doing our, our own version of social distancing, especially where kids are involved. And if social distancing in your house and your neighborhood looks anything like it does in my neighborhood, uh, we kind of keep to ourselves and we keep to our neighborhood, but because of that, our kids kind of all just hang out together and we social distance together. And I know that's the case in several different communities, neighborhoods, subdivisions around the area. I've seen it as I've been driving through. I've heard it as I've talked to several of you all. So if that's the case with you, and there are several kids that are hanging out with your kids, or, or maybe it's family, maybe you just have a large extended family and you all get together and it's just you all who are hanging out, social distancing. Let me throw this out there to you. Would you be interested in hosting a backyard Bible club where maybe it's your kids and the other kids who've already been hanging out with your kids in the neighborhood because their parents wouldn't let them come here and be around a bunch of other kids and a bunch of other adults that they're not normally around, but they would let them come to your house and hang out with your kids because they've already been doing that. Would you be interested and would you let me know that, hey, I would love to host a backyard Bible club? We've had people talk about doing VBS virtually here online, and that would be great for our kids, but that doesn't reach our community, and that doesn't reach our community kids. And that's really so much every year what VBS is about, reaching those kids who don't normally come here, maybe don't normally come to church, but will come with your kids. Maybe they're cousins, maybe they're friends from school, friends from their ball team. They'll come a few nights, and they'll hear the gospel, and they'll make a profession of faith, and they'll learn what it means to walk with Christ and grow in relationship to him. So we want to see that continue to happen, but it's not going to happen online if we just throw it out there for our kids. So would you be willing to host a Backyard Bible Club? If you think it would work, see me. If you'd be willing to uh, help prep snacks here and prep crafts and get those together bagged up individually, leading up to some of those Backyard Bible Clubs, let me know. We're going to try to get this thing going before school gets started back. We'd love to see two or three of these things happen so that we could reach some kids that wouldn't normally be here and wouldn't join us if we just threw VBS out there online. So thank you for praying about that, considering about that, and uh, let me know if God's leading you to be a part of it. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are grateful for a chance to be here in your house. God, we're thankful that you aren't socially distant from us. But God, you desire a close, personal, intimate relationship, a meaningful meeting with us. And so God, speak to each of us, not just as a group. God, we certainly hope you do that. But God, speak with us individually on where it is you need us to be, what it is you need us to be doing, what it is you need us to change, how it is that we need to be looking more like the people you've created us to be. God, help us greet you in our praises in truth 
this morning as we sing another song. God, help us be attentive to your word as you speak into our hearts this morning. And God, help us be obedient in what it is that you're going to challenge us to do as we leave this place today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for indulging me again this morning. Pastor Kenny went to see some more kids uh, over the last few days, so we're excited to be back in the pulpit with you again this morning. We will be taking a break from our series that we've been in in Revelation, The Lion and the Lamb, but I have a message today that is somewhat related, so we're not going to be detouring too far from where we've been, that we will, instead of being at the end of Scripture, we will be going back toward the beginning of your Bible. So if you would turn with me to the book of Genesis in chapter 6. We're going to be uh, looking today at a reference, really, that Jesus makes in uh, both Matthew and Luke. As you're well aware, we've been talking about these uh, labor pains, the, these events that will be leading up to and the way things will be leading up to the end times. And in Luke chapter 17, we see that Jesus says this, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So Jesus is saying at the end, In the coming days, in the coming of the Son of Man, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. Now, when he says it will be like it was in the days of Noah, I think there are two ways that that could be taken. One, and primarily what is meant by this, is this fact that they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. In other words, paying no thought and paying no mind to the fact that the end was coming. They were living life as normal. They were living their best life now. They were just doing whatever it was that they needed to do. They were doing all the things that you would expect someone to do in the course of a normal life. In the course of a normal life where no thought is given to what's happening spiritually around them, and what's happening in the world. And so as they're living life, or they're going through life and doing all the things that they would normally do, never giving a thought to God, never giving a thought to any of his warnings that had been coming for hundreds and hundreds of years, all of a sudden the end comes. And to them, it seems like it just comes out of nowhere. But really, they've had hundreds of years of warning of God's impending judgment. But the second thing that I think it means, whenever it says it will be like the days of Noah, is that culturally, intellectually, it'll be like it was in the days of Noah. The, the place that people are at mentally and spiritually will be reflective of what it was like in those days because that's how you get to that point where you can hear God's warning about impending judgment. You can hear God's call to repentance or sin for hundreds and hundreds of years. These people were hearing it their entire lives and yet they were doing nothing about it. How did they get to that point? How did they get to the point that when the prophet of God spoke, it was meaningless to them and didn't move them to repentance at all? And as it was in the days of Noah, as we see that, so it will be in the coming of the Son of God. And so today we're looking at living in the days of Noah. Living in the days of Noah. And we're going to begin together in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be uh, reading several passages. We're going to be picking apart the things that we find here. 
It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. The sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. Now, you notice I left out a couple of verses there. We're going to come back and pick those up, but I wanted to put together the things here in this passage that really go together. And here we're talking about this relationship between the sons of God and the daughters of man and what's going on there. Now, there's a rabbit trail here that I could chase, and we would chase it all morning long. So I'm not going to do that because we will never get into the meat of what I want to talk about today. But as I was telling Jonathan beforehand, this is one of these things that I find interesting and one of these things I've done a lot of reading and studying on. And I may very well put together a little video that we'll put out there on our social media that if you want to chase this rabbit trail with me, you're more than welcome to come and watch and we can discuss it if you'd like. But the point of the matter today is regardless of who you believe the sons of God are and who these daughters of men are, the fact is they're marrying as they see fit. As they choose. In other words, in the days of Noah, they're rejecting God's authority. It doesn't matter what God says about who they should marry and who they should be with. Instead, what we're seeing here are these unholy marriages. They're seeing these women and the fact that they're attractive is the only thing that matters to them. They're seeing these relationships as something that satisfies a desire, a need, a passion that they have. And so it says they're taking in marriage whoever they choose. They're giving in marriage whoever they choose. There's an implication in the way that's worded that these marriages aren't always monogamous and that sometimes they are even shared. But regardless of how these marriages work, The overwhelming characteristic here is the rejection of God's authority about what marriage should be and what marriage was given toward. And it gives this overall picture of where the mindset of these people are. The marriages are just indicative of a deeper cause, something that's there at the root, and that's this rejection of God's authority in their lives. And so in the days of Noah, we see a generation, a culture, who's living, doing literally whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, because what God says does not matter and has no bearing in their lives, their thought process, their decision making. It's not even lip service that they're paying to him. It's not even that they're trying to do the right thing in front of people, yet behind closed doors they're denying him with what they do there. No, there's a lot of integrity in this generation in the fact that whether it's in public or in private, there's a complete and total rejection of God's authority in their lives. And he goes on and he says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now there wouldn't be a problem here if they simply said the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and these were mighty men. Oftentimes this word Nephilim is translated as giants especially whenever we get into the time when the children of Israel are going into the promised land and God is giving that into their hands, they encounter the Nephilim there. And we understand that they're giants. We understand that Goliath was a descendant of some of these Nephilim that they encounter or the giants that they encounter in the promised land as they're entering in and taking that possession that God had given to them. But the problem here is this phrase, these men of renown. Notice what they're doing in the days of Noah. They're calling evil good. This term Nephilim literally means fallen ones. So notice what they've done. They said these fallen ones 
aren't just mighty men. It's not just talking about their strength and their stature. No, they're men of renown. These are fallen ones. These are people that God has termed fallen because they are so wicked, they are so evil, they have so rejected his authority and the position that he has called them to be in, and yet mankind looks at them, looks at their deeds, looks at who they are, what they've accomplished, what they've done, what they've done in terms of earthly power and earthly domination. And man says, these are men of renown. These are the people we put on a pedestal. These are the people we look up to. These are the people that are the epitome of what mankind should be and could be. And yet the epitome now of what this generation is aspiring to is the very lowest point of humanity as far as God is concerned. Everything has been flipped, turned upside down. And it's exactly, exactly what we see when we begin to reject God's authority, we begin to seek authority elsewhere. As we reject God as the standard, what do we put in the place? They've gone to complete opposite end of the spectrum. He goes on in Genesis 6 and verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What does that say about how wicked Man had become when God looks at this generation as opposed to all the other generations before and says this generation's wickedness is great on the earth. Things weren't good for several generations before. And yet when God looks at this generation, he says this generation's wickedness is great. How great is it? How pervasive is it? Well, this generation perfected wickedness. They perfected wickedness. What do, what do we mean by that? Well, look, it says every intention. Every intention. In other words, every attitude, every motivation, every thought, every decision that was made was based in this evil and this wickedness that was there. And we look at mankind and we believe in the total depravity of man. We, we believe that man is totally corrupt. And in and of himself, man can't do anything that pleases God. And yet as we look around at people, we see people sometimes doing things that we see as good or humane, that that benefits their fellow man. Now sometimes we do those things for a selfish reason or a selfish motivation. We, We see corporations sometimes giving back to their community or giving to local schools or helping out a local family that's in need or coming to the rescue in a disaster. And we think, oh, that is so good of that company. But why did that company choose to do that? Why did that company choose to spend millions of dollars in doing what it is that they did? It's free advertising, isn't it? It makes them look good in your eyes. So even though it's the right thing to do, and sure, maybe they're doing it in part because it's the right thing to do, they also benefit from it, and that weighs in on the decision. So there's no good that man does that's completely good in and of its own because man is not good. Man is corrupt. And yet when God looked at this generation, he says their wickedness is great. He says every intention. There is no thought that ever crosses their mind of doing the right thing because it's the right thing, of doing good because it's good. Every thought, every action, every decision is weighed somehow on how will this benefit 
me? How does this benefit me? Every intention of the thoughts of the heart. What's the Bible tell us? Out of the overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. It's another way of saying everything that we do, everything that we say is rooted in where our heart is, in the attitude and the condition of our heart. That word speaks is tied to conversation, and conversation in the Greek is tied not to what we say, but regularly what we do, the way that we carry ourselves, what we communicate day to day. So what we communicate, what we do, what we say, the way we act is tied to the condition of our heart. And God says when he looks at the generation of Noah, every intention of their heart is evil continually. It's evil continually. In the New Testament, it says that when the eyes of the soul or the heart are darkened, how great is that darkness that's within. This generation's eyes had been completely shuttered spiritually. There was no light. He says they are at their darkest. There is nothing that they do, nothing that they think, nothing that they say, no end they won't go to to get what they desire and what they want. And because of that, he says, the earth is filled with violence through them. They're a generation that multiplied violence. It didn't matter what they did. All that mattered is what they got and what they desired. And that end justified any means. It didn't matter who they killed. It didn't matter who they stole from. It didn't matter who they raped. It didn't matter what city they pillaged or destroyed. As long as they got what they desired and it satisfied their passions, their lust, that's all that mattered. And when we get to the place where the only thing that matters is us and what we want, we devalue anyone else. Everyone else is a stepping stone. Everyone else is a pawn in our chess game. Everyone else in anything else is expendable as long as we get what we desire. And this generation in the days of Noah had gotten as far along as they could get. They were at the logical end of where sin will take us. And this is a perfect picture as we look in the days of Noah at where sin will lead. So here in the days of Noah, we we see this extreme, right? And as we look at the world around us, we can see signs of this and we see elements of this in our culture, in our society. But we're not all the way there yet. And yet we know it's coming because Jesus said, in the days of the Son of Man, this, this is where we'll be. But one of the things we need to realize with the days of Noah is that it didn't happen overnight. Noah didn't just go to bed one night and wake up the next day and the whole world had fallen apart. No, it began at the fall. So there's a progression that's going. But this progression is a long, ever-steepening descent. It's not just that since the fall, mankind was on a downward slope. Mankind's on a downward slope that's constantly getting steeper and steeper and steeper. And that is how Noah's generation got to where they were. That's how if we'll step back and look at the world that we're in, if we're really looking closely, that's how we'll see the world that we're in. 
It's not just that we're on a downward slope. We're not slowly and progressively getting more and more wicked. The world is rapidly getting more and more wicked the further that we go. It's a runaway train. And if we're not careful, soon we'll be at this place. So if we're not actually living then in the days of Noah, what generation are we living in? Well, 69 years before Noah was born, 549 years before God declared that I won't contend with man forever. He has 120 years left to get his act together. There was a man, a prophet of God, who Genesis 5 says went from walking with God here on earth to walking with God in heaven. Because it says God took him. He didn't die. God took him. This man, this prophet of God who, who walked with him and God delivered from coming judgment was Noah's great-grandfather, a man by the name of Enoch. So let's look at the days of Enoch and see if we can begin to understand the generation that we are in and how we arrive from Enoch's generation to Noah's generation. Because you see, if you sit and you think about life expectancy, and you think about the time and how long people were living in the days of Noah, Enoch was a very young man. When he ceased to be here because God took him, he was only 365 years old. Yes, you heard me. He was only 365 years old. But you have to stop and think. His son, Methuselah, Noah's grandfather, was 969 years old. Noah's father, Lamech, was 777 years old. Noah was 500 years old before he had children and 600 whenever the rains began. So 365, I mean, he's not even midlife. And if we begin to think about the generations in that way, and we begin to look at the generation in which Enoch was prophesying, and calling people to repentance and telling of God's coming judgment, for you all who have grandchildren right now, it would be like you prophesying now about what's coming in your grandchildren's day. And so we find Enoch, this prophet of God, speaking into this generation that's coming this generation that he sees on this downward decline, this generation that he sees heading fast towards God's ultimate judgment. And you say, well, where do we find Enoch's prophecy? Because if you go to Genesis chapter 5, the only thing it tells us is Enoch walked with God 300 years after he had his son. And at 365 years of age, God took him. And he began to walk with God in heaven. There was a book. And there still is. You can get copies of it. It's an apocryphal book that is the teachings and the prophecies of Enoch. Uh, many ancient Jewish rabbis revered this book, gave a lot of credence to this book, and yet it wasn't canonized. It wasn't included in part of their scripture. Why? I don't know. But God didn't need it there. But what God did need was to preserve just a part of what Enoch taught. Just a part of this prophecy of Enoch. 
And we find it in Scripture. You're thinking, I've never read it. I've never seen a book called Enoch. I don't believe you. Well, turn with me to a book that I promise you is in the Bible. Some of you have never seen it. You've never flipped to it. You've never read it. You have no idea what it's about. But go back to Revelation, where we've been studying, and go one book to your left. And there, you'll find the book of Jude. Jude is only one chapter. So when you see these scripture references coming up on the screen, or you hear me referring to these verses, there is no chapter reference, and that's okay, because there's only one. So I'm simply referring to them by the verses. But if you look in Jude 14, you'll see this part of Enoch's prophecy that God thought that we needed and that we needed to understand. It says, in Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied about them. Look, the Lord comes with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict them of all their ungodly deeds that they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Notice that word ungodly in there four times. Do you think God's trying to get something across? But Enoch is prophesying, and this is one of these things, and we've talked about this in the book of Revelation, and Pastor Kenny's talked about this, this dual fulfillment of prophecy, and these prophecies sometimes that apply to multiple generations. Enoch was prophesying about God's impending judgment coming upon the generations of his day based on what was going on there. But yet this is a prophecy that's still yet not completely been fulfilled, and that's why God chose to preserve it here for us, because you see that he says he's coming with ten thousands of his holy ones. This is talking about ultimate judgment at the end of the age. This is in the days of the Son of God coming back. This prophecy will finally and completely be fulfilled. Yet there's a few things that we need to notice, a few things that are characteristic that we, that we pick up here about Enoch's generation. And remember, this would be the generation that we're living in now. This is the generation that's speeding out of control down this slope that leads us ultimately to where we see the generation of Noah, where we'll be in the coming of the Son of God. So let's look at what we can glean from this about the generation of Enoch. First of all, it says that they blaspheme God. They blaspheme God. It, it, talking about these harsh things that these ungodly sinners are speaking while they're doing all of their ungodly deeds and speaking harshly about God. What kind of harsh things would they be saying? Well, if they're rejecting God's authority, God is powerless. God is no one. God is insignificant. God is not in control. God can't... God doesn't make good on his promises. God can't provide the way that he needs to provide. Anything that they can say about God and defame his character and blaspheme who he is, they're saying, because there is no respect for God or his authority that's given. But what's interesting there is in verse 14, it said, Enoch prophesied about these, about these so who was Jude talking about? When Jude was writing, who was he talking about when he said God or Jude is prophesying about them? Well, if we go back to the beginning of the book and begin looking in verse 4, it tells us this. Certain people have kept 
crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In other words, what Jude is saying is, we see in our day, and Jude saw in his day, these same characteristics, these same types of people, these same sins, these same tendencies. And he says, just as it was in Enoch's day, so it is in Jude's day, and so it is in our day, in this generation now. He says these people not only blaspheme God, but they deny the way of salvation. You see, we look back to the cross and we see Jesus Christ as the way of salvation. And Jude saw the same thing and he says these men are trying to deny Jesus Christ, our way of salvation. And yet, in Enoch's day, what he was looking at was the salvation that only came through repentance and turning to God. He didn't yet understand Christ and what the work would be that he would accomplish on the cross and through his resurrection. Yet he did have the promise that we see in Genesis chapter 3 the seed of the woman who was coming to defeat Satan and sin and bring man back to God. See, Enoch understood that only God was the means of salvation. Only God provided a way to break the curse of sin and to overcome what he was seeing in the people of his generation, and yet they were denying the way of salvation. But he says they also were using the grace of God to do what feels good. That word sensuality, many times we attach it to something sexual, but it doesn't have to be. It simply means to do based on what we feel, to do based on our passions and our desires. In other words, if it feels good, do it. And these people were saying, if there is in fact a God, then God is a God of love and God is a God of mercy and God is a God of grace and God is a God who would never condemn anyone to hell for an eternity. So let's just do what we want to do. I mean, after all, it's God who put these hormones in us, and it's God who gave us this appetite, and it's God who gave us a taste for this thing, and it's God who made this grow, and it's God who gave us this technology. So let's use all these things that God has provided to bring the ultimate joy and pleasure in whatever it is that we want to do. And they're turning the grace and the blessings of God into a license to do whatever feels good. But then he goes on and he says, The angels who did not stay in their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now notice this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So what? these angels have done that he's put in chains and he's kept in this gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, this leaving their proper dwelling and not staying with their position of authority, this idea of position and dwelling goes back to these words that can mean their their established estate or their position. It doesn't have to mean an abode like a home. But this place where they've been put, this place where they've been created, this thing that they've been designated for, however it is that they left that is somehow just as and like the sexual sin and unnatural desire that we see in Sodom and Gomorrah. That would be part of my rabbit trail that I'll chase later. But here's why it's important. He goes on in the next verse and he says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme 
the glorious ones. In other words, in Enoch's generation, we see this pattern already beginning that we see full-blown and full-fledged in the days of Noah that people are chasing unnatural sexual desires. And in doing so, the same underlying mindset is there that we saw underlying these unholy marriages in Noah's day. They're rejecting God's authority. They're rejecting what he has to say about the issue. They're rejecting the things that he has established, the order that he has desired. But not only rejecting God's authority, but they're rejecting spiritual reality. They're refusing to see what's happening, who they're partnering with, who they're making compromises with, what they're allowing into their lives by bringing in whatever they desire physically. Because you see, things that we commit physically, sins that we commit physically, don't just take a toll on our physical bodies. But they take a toll on us spiritually as well. And these people refuse to see what they're doing to themselves and refuse to see what's going on around them. Even though Enoch stood before them proclaiming righteousness, And God's coming judgment. But then he goes on and says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. In other words, these people believe they're self-sufficient. That was the way of Cain, wasn't it? Cain refused to go to Abel to ask for or to purchase from him what God required for sacrifice because what he could grow and what he could provide through his own labor and his own efforts and his own talents should be good enough for God. And when God wouldn't accept it and God turned him out and God took away from him the fields and the ability to grow, the very thing that Cain identified with, Cain didn't turn back to God. Cain didn't become dependent on God. Instead, Cain went. And instead of being a nomad, as God said he was going to be, what did he go? He went and established cities. He could do this on his own. He could do this his way. And if God wouldn't raise up for him a legacy in his kingdom, Cain would raise up a legacy for himself. And so these people believe they're self-sufficient, that they could do it without God and apart from God's blessing. But they also think that God, if there is a God, and you'll notice I use this word, I was going to use quotes, but it got too confusing. They think this God is a tool for personal gain. If they have anything to do with God, God is going to bring them personal gain. That's the error of Balaam. Balaam was ready to abandon his position and his relationship as a prophet to make a prophet by bringing a curse on God's people Israel. He knew that God was capable. He knew that God was able. He knew that God could do. And he thought that if he did all the right things and said all the right things and did it the right way, that he could sway God or force God to do what it was that he wanted him to do. Because that's what the king was paying him for, right? And so Balaam sees this relationship with God or any interaction that he had with God as something that could bring him gain. It wasn't about God's kingdom and God's glory, but it was about him and his end and his desires. But it says they were participants in Korah's rebellion. If you remember, Korah was the one who goes to Moses and says, Now Moses, why is it that just you get to speak for God? 
Why is it that God's only working through you and you're the only one who gets to say, thus saith the Lord? We're all God's children. We're all descendants of Abraham. We've all been delivered out of Egypt. We've all walked across the Red Sea. We've all feasted on the manna from heaven. Some of us want to say it too. Some of us have an opinion. Maybe some of us get to say, thus saith the Lord. And so this generation feels that they have a right to speak for God, or should I say, as God. They get to decide what's right. They get to decide morality. They get to decide who's on the right side of the law and who's on the wrong. They get to interpret the law. They get to interpret justice. They get to see where we're headed. Everyone is an expert and their opinion is right, regardless of the truth and the standard that God has set. But that's the generation of Enoch. Do we we see any of these characteristics in our generation today? Do we see people who think they can live apart from God until they need him or need something from him, and then he's someone who can be manipulated to take care of their problem and take care of their issue or to bring them blessing, but don't dare Use that same God's standard of truth or that same God's standard of morality because they get to decide what's right for them and what's wrong for you. But he doesn't stop there. He says they're grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, and here's the telling characteristic, devoid of the Spirit. Devoid of the Spirit. They may claim to be followers of God. They may claim to know Him. They may claim to be spiritual people. They may claim to have had enlightenment. They may claim to have had a vision or a direct word from God, but these people are devoid of the Spirit. They're about self-promotion and causing division within the body. So we're looking at living In the days of Noah, the question is, how how do we really live? What does it mean to be living in the days of Noah? How, How did Noah do it? How did Enoch do it in his generation? How were they men who were saved and delivered out of the judgment that was to come? Well, the one thing that we see common between the two of them is that they walked with God. In Genesis chapter 5 and verses 22 and 24, both tell us that Enoch walked with God. But in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, it says, Noah walked with God. So what does it mean to walk with God? Well, let's walk like Noah. How did Noah walk? How did he leave an example for us that we need to follow in this generation that we're in? In this generation that our children, our grandchildren are certainly going to be facing and living in, what is it going to mean for them to walk like Noah? How do we instill that into them? What do we teach them? What do we need to show them in our walk? Because that's where Noah got it from. Enoch passed it along to Methuselah. Methuselah passed it on to Lamech. And Lamech passed it on to Noah. And what's sad is it seems to be that Noah is the only one for which it took. Because it says after Enoch fathered Methuselah, he had other sons and daughters. After Methuselah fathered Lamech, he had other sons and daughters. After Lamech fathered Noah, he had other sons and daughters. And yet, which one was saved from God's judgment? 
We need to be careful and make sure our children are understanding what it means to walk with God. So what did that look like for Noah? We'll look in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah was righteous. Noah was righteous. What is righteousness? It refers to a right standing before God. So when we're looking at Noah's righteousness, spiritually what we're looking at is Noah's standing before God. It was his standing before God. And notice that this isn't something that Noah got because he was a good man and he did right things. No, it's a grace that's extended to Noah because of his faith. You see, we're saved by grace, what? Through faith. What what is real saving faith? What does that look like? Warren Wiersbe has a great explanation of it. And he breaks down and looks at Noah's faith and pictures this faith in Noah's life. And he says that true saving faith is this. The mind understands the truth that God is presenting. The heart moves or the heart fears that truth that the mind understands. And then the will acts on that truth as it's presented. And you see, all three elements must be there because a mind that simply understands the truth but isn't moved into action and doesn't act on that moving of the heart is simply a mind that assents to a spiritual truth. It's believism, but it's not faith. And yet a heart that's moved A heart that's emotionally moved and emotionally stirred but doesn't understand the truth that's been presented to it, that isn't faith because faith is rooted in truth. And a mind that understands truth and a heart that's moved to action but a will that does nothing about it, that's not faith because faith without works is dead. So we have to have all three parts to have a true saving faith. And that's when we find righteousness. Noah heard about the impending judgment. Noah was told what to do to get ready for that judgment. And in the fear, not just the shaking, quaking, anxiety-induced fear, but in this holy, reverent, respectable, knowing the implications and the impact and the intensity of what was to come, Noah's heart was moved. And understanding what was coming, believing and fearing what was coming, fearing the God who had given him this revelation and the respect and the reverence that he had for them, what did Noah do? He acted. He acted. You sit here today. Maybe you've been sitting under this series about Revelation, the Lion and the Lamb, now for several weeks. You've heard the truth of where we are. You've heard the truth of what's coming. You've heard the truth and the reality of what eternity will be. And maybe you believe it. The question is, has your heart been moved? Have you been convicted about where you are and the relationship that you're in and the way that you're living and the example that you're setting for those around you? Has your heart been moved? Has your heart been stirred? Do you live in this respectful and reverent fear of the God who's coming and bringing judgment with Him? Do you realize that that's the God you're worshiping and serving today in this life, the God that desires relationship from you even now? 
Has it moved you to action? Have you done anything about that? Are you simply ascribing and assenting to an intellectual truth? Living with an emotion, an emotional reaction. But there's no saving faith there in your life. Today's the day that you need to do something about that. See, Noah was a righteous man, but Noah was also blameless. If his righteousness referred to his standing before God, his blamelessness refers to his standing before men. As people looked at Noah and looked at his life, they couldn't find anything really that was wrong with him. They could not like him. They could try to tear him down. They could try to discredit him. But Noah was blameless. There was nothing that anyone could point to in his life. Was he a perfect man? No. But the way in which he carried himself amongst his generation, he didn't fall to the pressure that they did. He didn't join them in their revelry and their sin. Noah was blameless in his generation. But he goes on in 22, it says, Noah did this. God gives him all the command for building the ark and bringing the animals on and the food that he must have and all of these things. It says, Noah did this. Noah did all that God commanded him. You see, Noah was obedient. And Noah was obedient in the midst of disobedience. Can you imagine working on this project? For decades, no one else joining you in your labor. No one else willing to help you finish the project that you've started. No one else believing what it is that you're preaching. No one else taking the stand that you're taking. No one else wanting to hear or caring to listen to what it is that you've been trying to proclaim. No one wanting the safety of the ark. No one believing that there's judgment coming. No one believing that you have a way. No one believing that God has made this boat big enough. Not just for Noah and his family and the animals they were to take on the ark, but to anyone else who would believe. Yet Noah was obedient in the face of disobedience, and he was obedient in the presence of friends and family. Remember, Noah had brothers and sisters. He had nieces and nephews, cousins, aunts and uncles, great aunts and uncles. Where were any of them? Noah alone believed God and was obedient to his call. And Noah was obedient in all. Think about the absurdity to which God called Noah. The things that he called him to do. And yet Noah was obedient in all. We looked at Jude a little earlier and Jude tells us a little bit as he speaks to his generation, the people that he was writing to about living amongst this type of people. He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Notice he says it's in our most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, who is our seal, our down payment, right, of our salvation, keeping yourselves in the love of God, And John, there's this big old mess that God talks about where he says if we love him, we obey his commands, and the love of the Father is in us, then 
says the Father and the Son will come in and make their home with us. And Jesus says that we're wrapped up in Him just as He's wrapped up in God and that the Spirit's in us as we're in Him, as He's in God and God is in us. And God, do you see? Yeah, so we're in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that ultimately leads to our eternal life. And he says, take all of this and be encouraged. Build yourself up with it when you're facing all of this disobedience around you, when you're facing all of the wickedness and evil that's there. Look to, notice what all these things are describing. It's our righteousness. And just like Noah was righteous, he's telling us, be righteous. And be encouraged by your right standing. Be encouraged in knowing that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a seal of not just our future salvation, but our righteousness and our standing before God right now. But then he goes on and he says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now notice that part right there. This word garment is interesting because it referred to the long, thin robe that was worn underneath your outer clothes. It was your holy underwear, right? It was your long underwear that you would wear underneath whatever you were wearing for the day, that part that's right up against you and all sweaty and stinky and all, you know. But it says, hating even the garment stained by flesh. In other words, this is the inward part. This is the most private part. This isn't the part anybody else sees. You could have the most amazing, spectacular, clean garment on on the outside and impress everyone else, and what they don't see is your soiled, stinking underwear underneath, right? But just like Noah was blameless, it says be blameless. Hate even those little things marred by sin and the fleshly nature, that old man that's in there that no one else sees but you know it's there. Don't settle for keeping those things in your life. But hate those and get rid of them too. Let God have them and let God put them to death just like all of the outward sin. But notice he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Show mercy with fear. Snatch others out of the fire, right? These are all the things that we're to do amongst this generation while we're here. While Noah was building the boat, he was being obedient. But you know what he was being obedient doing at the same time? It says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah wasn't just supposed to build a boat to save himself and his closest kin. Noah was building a boat and giving a message of sin and repentance and coming judgment. And God's left us here to do the same. Be obedient. And Jude finishes his book with this. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Notice it's him who keeps us from stumbling and presents us from blameless. Be dependent. Be dependent. Noah was dependent on God to provide him the material, the resources, the get-up-and-go on the mornings whenever it seemed like it was pointless. He was dependent on God to bring the animals to his door. He was dependent on God to bring the increase of the crops that had to be harvested and go on the boat. Noah was dependent on God for everything that God had called him to do. And we'll never walk like Noah unless we're dependent on God. How are you living in the days of Noah? I hope you'll take example from what we've seen here today of two men who walked with God. 
And you'll not only make that a pattern for your life, but it'll make a pattern for those that come after you, a pattern that you'll set for your children and your grandchildren, knowing that we're in the days of Enoch, but we'll quickly be in the days of Noah. Where God looks on the earth once again and said, the wickedness of man is great. And their time has come. Father God, we thank you for this challenge this morning. We pray that we'll live in the truth and the understanding of not just where we're at morally and culturally, but God, where we're at spiritually and what's at stake. And yet, God, we'll look to these examples that you've given us of men who lived in a very similar situation and the way they walked with you and what that means. And God, I pray that we'll take it to heart. We'll make that the pattern for our lives. God, we'll be righteous before you. We'll be blameless before men. We'll be obedient in all that you call us to do. And in doing it, God, we'll be completely dependent on you. It's in your son's name that we pray today. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.